Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful reminder to us that our standing with you, our relationship with you, is built upon your unchanging nature. We've learned this morning already of the clarity of your scripture. You speak to us clearly because you have spoken things that you intend for us to know. You want for us to know about you, about what you've done for us, about who you are, about who we are, about the problem of sin, about what it is that awaits the believer, what it is that awaits the unbeliever. All of these things, plus many more, you've spoken to us, Lord, from your words so that we might know them, embrace them, hold them securely. And, and in the end, in learning all of it, we might grow in our love for you. That our affection for you might exceed our affection for anything or anybody else. For you're worthy of this praise, God. We've sung, you are a good and gracious king. We are not accepted by you upon our own merit. We're not accepted by you upon our goodness, about our, upon our accomplishments, upon what it is that we know. We're accepted by you solely because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and you being pleased in that. And for those of us who come to you by faith, you adopt. You do not turn away. You bring us into your fold and you love us perfectly. And we thank you, Father, for that. Help us now, Lord, as again our eyes are drawn back to a text where our Lord Jesus is again showing incredible mercy, compassion on those who are in need of it, whoever in a position of life where they cannot help themselves. But you come and you hear their plea, their cry for mercy, and you respond positively towards them. And so hear our cry, Lord, that you would illuminate your word to us today. Give us understanding so that we might love you and we might walk and faithful obedience to you as well. Open up our eyes, open up our hearts to see and to hear wonderful things from your word today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19 today. Our passage is a is a brief break from the context that we have been in for quite some time now in the book of Luke. Really, ever since the beginning of chapter 14 at this dinner party with the Pharisees that Jesus was invited to, which he attended, the context has been Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and with his disciples, kind of going back and forth, correcting the Pharisees on their false understanding and, and teaching, and then um, teaching his disciples how to be faithful disciples, how to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. And then it is, in our passage today, we have this um, returning back to Jesus, performing a, a miracle for these ten men with leprosy. And it's really kind of a, a, a sweet reminder that in the midst of all the teaching, in the midst of the discipleship, in the midst of the correction, all of this, 
you know, theology and doctrine that's going on where Jesus is correcting the Pharisees and of their false doctrine, and he's teaching his disciples of what good doctrine is and how to live in a way that's pleasing to him. We have kind of this oasis, this break, where once again we see Jesus doing what it is that he does and coming to the need of those who cry out to, mer- to him for mercy. It's the last miracle that Luke records in his gospel outside of the resurrection, which is a pretty big miracle. But if you've noticed, and I've mentioned this in the past, but Luke, the way that the gospel of Luke has been written out, it was really heavy on all of the miraculous, the healings and things like that early on in the book of Luke. And there was very little interaction with the Pharisees. There was some, but not a whole lot. And not a ton of teaching to his disciples. It was really empowering them to do gospel ministry. And he was going around performing healings and, and miracles. Just seemed like chapter after chapter, it was just full of it. And then as we get into and we move through the book of Luke, we get towards the end, the miracles seem to kind of peter off. And what begins to ramp up is really his teaching toward his, towards his disciples and his correction and rebuking of the Pharisees. But in doing so, the miracles kind of die off like that. And so it's, the book is kind of balanced in the sense where early on it's light on the teaching and the correction, heavy on the miracles. As we move through, it's light on the miracles, but it's more heavy on the teaching and the correction. And so that's one of the things that we see as we move through the book of Luke. And so this being in chapter 17 is really the last miracle that Luke records. And it's kind of a, a nice little oasis as we're reminded of who it is that Jesus is, what it is that he's come to do. To do. I think of... 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a good and trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's a really sweet reminder for us, especially when we're in a, in a section of Luke where it's, we're reminded of the heavy doctrine and theology and teaching. Don't ever forget what it is that Christ has come to do. Why does he teach? Why does he correct? He does so to prove who he is, to call his disciples into fellowship with him, and to save the lost and to save the sinner. Never forget, wherever it is that you are in life, as much as it is that you are learning about the clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture, the infallibility, the inerrancy, all these doctrines that we love, that we embrace, that we hold on to, and we should, never forget this simple, wonderful truth. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And our life is found in, that, in Him and in, and in knowing that one simple truth will breed a tremendous amount of gratitude, worship, as we'll see in our passage today. One of the other things that we see in our passage as well is the importance of faith. It all begins with faith and having Faith in Christ is where life for the believer begins. And so even as we get down the road of our spiritual growth and our maturity and we're learning all these wonderful things about who God is and about the Scripture, we're reminded that we're not justified by our ability to expound the Scripture. We're not justified by our ability to always be faithful to the Scripture. 
We're justified by faith in the finished and completed work of Christ. And as important as those other things are, those things, that's all the fruit. The root is knowing Christ Jesus Himself as your Lord and Savior through faith, as we see in our passage again today. So let's read together Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19 together, and we'll work our way through. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. There's a couple really profound yet simple truths that we learn in the passage today. And even though the miracle in and of itself seems to be somewhat disconnected from the theme that we've been working through in Luke with discipleship and correction of the Pharisees, it's not completely disconnected. For what it is that we learned last week is the importance of seeing ourselves as unworthy servants. And at the end of the day, whatever it is that God has given us the ability and the gift to do, that which we carry out, at the end of the day, we say we have only done our duty. We are unworthy servants. Just thankful to be in the house of the master and serve under um, this great and wonderful, good and gracious king, like we've sung about. But you'll see in the passage today, as we just read, that there's the link in that they were the, the lepers were cleansed, and they were because they were, they did what it was that they were asked to do, and so this theme of obedience continues to run through. The Gospel of Luke it continues to run all the way through all of the Bible. And I know that the O, the o word, obedience, it's like, you know, it's a bad word because we don't like to talk about obedience. We, don't, we just like to talk about us being saved by the grace of God and then freed from the, the call to discipleship. But reading through the scripture, you see very clearly the call to follow him and walk in obedience to him. And obedience is a sign of loving him and trusting him. If you love me, you'll obey me. So obedience is always a sign. Not, not always, because our hearts can be in the wrong spot. But obedience is meant to be a sign that we love God. And that we trust him. And so we walk in obedience to him. But we're reminded in verse 11, at the, from the very beginning that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We were talking about this last night as a family. What is it that awaits him in Jerusalem? Does he know what is awaiting him when he gets to the city of Jerusalem? Do we remember that really this whole saga in Luke's Gospel began in, in chapter 9, verse 51? Luke is roughly broken up into three large sections. Chapter 1, verse 1, up until chapter 8, or chapter 9, verse 50. And then chapter 9, verse 51, up through 
um, later in the book when he actually gets into Jerusalem is in the second is in the second chunk. And so we find ourselves in the middle of this second chunk where he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's been making his way there. And what is it that awaits him in Jerusalem when he gets there? But the cross. He knows what it is that's going to take place to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem to him. This is why that he has come. It says in chapter 9, verse 51, when the days grew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When the time came near for him to be taken up, but what is it that has to take place before he's taken up and ascends to the Father? But his crucifixion, his death, his, and, and, that, and being crucified like a common criminal, a horrifically painful death. That's what awaits him in Jerusalem. That's what it is that he has set his face towards, set his face like flint. He will not be deterred from finishing and accomplishing his mission. And it is on his way to Jerusalem that he encounters these ten lepers. And even as he is on his mission to the cross to accomplish the work that he has come to do to die for sinners, to pay our debt, he sees the need of these ten men. And they cry out to him. And he takes time to minister to the ten lepers that call out his name. Even on his way to the cross, even as he has his face set like flint towards the mission that he has come to accomplish, he ministers to those who are around him, whom the Father has placed in his life. And so we see and are reminded really early on in this section that even on his way to Jerusalem, we see and we rejoice in him and what it is that he's come to do. You ever think about what took place upon that cross? You ever just stop and just stop and think about what it is that's going on as he's, as he's betrayed, as all of his friends desert him, as he's handed over to Pilate, as he's unjustly accused, as he's crucified. You ever think about these things? You ever read that account of this crown of thorns being shoved onto his head? You ever think about what it would feel like to have giant metal spikes driven through your flesh, your limbs, into a piece of wood that you're going to hang from? You ever think about what it must be like, what it must have been like to be spit upon, to be mocked and ridiculed, to be whipped within an inch of your life. I mean, the agony is indescribable. We get the word excruciating in our English language from this type of treatment. There's no other way to describe it other than to say it's excruciating. And we see him we see him on his way to Jerusalem, and we will see him in Jerusalem accomplishing the work that he has come to do for you and for me. We see him and we rejoice in that. The ten lepers, they saw him and they rejoiced. 
On his way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He's going in between the two areas, the geographical regions there. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. I don't know why the ESV translates verse 12 as he was met by 10 lepers. I think every other translation, the the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NIV, the NASB, the King James, the New King James, even the New Living Translation translates it as he was met by 10 men who had leprosy. Which is, reminds us is that Jesus sees people, not diseases. He sees these 10 men. He sees them in their humanity. He sees them as being men created in the image of God with bodies infected and riddled with an incredibly wicked disease. One that deteriorated your flesh, literally. Who knows what these men looked like? Who knows if all of them had all their fingers, all their toes, all, both ears, their nose? Most likely, they, many of them, probably all of them, had some of these appendages missing. With sores covering their bodies, they were unclean. They couldn't come within 50 feet, I think is what I read, of, of any other person because they were unclean for fear of catching this disease of leprosy, because it was fatal. Eventually, you would die from it. And so these 10 men, they're hanging around each other because they all got the same disease. They can't be around anybody else. But they're still men. Jesus takes the time to minister to people. He sees people. He knows, think of it, the scripture doesn't record where they're from. Doesn't record what they look like doesn't record their names. But Jesus knows all of that. He knows their names. He knows where they're from. He knows the number of hairs on their head. He knows everything that there is to know about them. And he sees 10 men with leprosy crying out to him for mercy. They have nowhere else to go. There's no other hope that they have. We see and we rejoice that he sees people. He sees you. He sees me. He sees what it is that goes on in the heart. He knows what you think about. He knows what you dream about. He knows what your hopes are. He knows what your fears are. He knows everything that there is to know about you. He always has and he always will. And yet he's still good and gracious to us even in our disease of sin that has so riddled the body that it will be fatal. These, 12, these 10 men lift up their voice in verse 13. They lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They stand at a distance because they can't get close. And they're just shouting out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. It's interesting the wording that they use. And we know that the words that are recorded in Scripture are ultimately recorded and penned by God Himself. And so every word that is in Scripture we pay attention to. Why that word? Why in that place? Why spoken in that way? 
They rightly identify Jesus in, in his humanity. They know him to be Jesus of Nazareth. They've probably heard of what it is that he has done. By this time, his fame has spread. He's, he's healed other lepers. He's healed other people of other diseases. His fame precedes him. He is their only hope, and so they call out to him. But what they say is Jesus, in identifying him in his humanity, master. Now this word master is interesting because it's only used in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's the only one who uses it in the entire Bible. And it means leader or commander or owner or ruler over all things. But what's interesting is that it's used here by the ten lepers, it's used one other place by John, and it's used five other places by Peter. The only people outside of the lepers that use this word are Peter and John. And so this word is, has the connotation of discipleship to it. They see him as master. Peter and John, they see him as master, as ruler, leader over all things. The lepers, they see him in the same way. They use discipleship language as they see Jesus the Messiah walking. And they call out to him, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And again, this term for mercy is not just the idea of feel sorry for us. It's not the idea of just, you know, have pity on us or even have compassion. This word mercy has a really heavy connotation to divine covenant love. Again, Luke uses it three times. He uses it in chapter 16 as it is connected to Abraham, the rich man after he dies, goes to hell and says, Abraham, send Lazarus to have mercy upon me. It's used here in connection to Jesus. And it's used again later on in chapter 18 as Jesus is described as the son of David. All of this to mean is that there's a patriarch, both Abraham and David are connected to this idea of mercy, of divine covenant love. Essentially what they're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, you are owner over all things. Show us covenant love like you had shown your people in, throughout the Old Testament. They're appealing to him based on their understanding of his nature of being the one who showed covenant love to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. This type of co divine covenant love that was limited to them for that time, but in which no other nation was a partaker in. And their appeal to him as Jesus, you are owner over everything. You were the master, you were the ruler over all. Come to us and show us this divine love, this divine covenant love that we're familiar with that you had shown throughout to our ancestors throughout the history of our nation. And in doing so, they ascribe to him that they understand not just him in his humanity, but in his deity as well. Do that for us which only God can do, is what they're saying. And this has been a theme throughout the book of Luke. The humanity and the deity of Christ, making him the God-man, this is their cry, this is their plea. And we see and we rejoice as they rightly identify him and Jesus responds to their plea for mercy. He comes to them and 
When he saw them, it says in verse 14, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Why? You ever think, why would he ask them to go and show themselves to the priests? Why not just heal them on the spot like he had done a number of other times to other people? Part of it is understanding what it is that they're asking for in their cry for mercy. See, if they were to go and show themselves to the priest, this is a display of divine power. The role of the priest, the job of the priest back in Leviticus chapter 10, they were the ones who would distinguish between that which was clean and unclean, that which was holy and unholy. As lepers, they know they can't go to the priest. They are unclean. They are unholy. They may get to the temple and they will not be allowed to go inside. The priest, nobody, nobody, especially the priests, are coming within 50 feet of these guys. They are unclean. And especially if they went to the priest, the priest would declare them unclean. But he's showing them in their act of obedience and going, divine power. The priests only declare what is clean and unclean. God is the one who makes something clean or unclean. They are unclean physically. They cannot go. They are eliminated. Can you imagine being, you are a social pariah. You can't go to church. You can't go to the grocery store. You can't, you can't go to work. You can't do anything because of your disease. Your outward uncleanliness disqualifies you from everything. But Jesus is going to make them clean as they go. Which is what happens in verse 14. Go, yourself, go and show yourselves to the priests and as they went, they were cleansed. The word cleansed is used specifically because it has religious connotations to it. You're going to go to the priest and you're going to be cleansed. Religiously, you'll be allowed to come back in to the temple and partake of Judaism. You'll be cleansed from your disease. And that's exactly what happens to them. They are restored back into the social fabric of their culture. They can now go to the temple. They can be reunited with their families. They can see their wives, their kids, their, their husbands, if any of them are, well, they were 10 men, so they're, they can't see, you know, you know what I'm saying. Um, they can see their wives, they can see their kids, they can have life restored to them. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be one of these lepers? Imagine as, like, you're, you're, you're walking from the village, and as you're walking on the way to see the priest, you notice that your skin begins to clear up. The diseases, the sores, they, they, they stop weeping. And they begin to close up, and they begin to get healed. And I don't know if they had lost any appendages, but if they did, I wonder if, like, their, if, their finger, if they watched their fingers start to grow back, or they just healed. Whatever way, can you imagine what it is that they must have been going through as they're walking along, they see a physical transformation take place over them. 
And all the hopes can, and who knows for how many years they had leprosy and how long they had to endure being a social outcast, not being able to see anybody that they love, not being able to come in contact. When was the last time one of these person, these men gave a hug or received a hug? Shook a hand, gave a high five. Things that we take for granted all the time. We walk in this store, we greet one another, we give each other a hug, we, we shake hands. That's not happening if you're a leper. You don't have any of that. And can you imagine what it is that they're experiencing as they're on their way to see the priest? They're being restored and all the hopes and the dreams of being able to go home. To walk back in your front door again. And instead of having people say, get out of here, you're welcomed in. Children run, run up to you. Your wife comes up to you. Your restored, friendships are restored once again. It must have been incredible for them to see that and to experience that. They were cleansed. They were restored. And I think in that we find what it was that they're asking for in their plea for mercy. Have mercy upon us because we want to go, go back to our families. We want to be socially and religiously restored and cleansed once again. And when they go, they see that they're healed. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, again, this has physical and outward language. They're cleansed outwardly. They're healed outwardly. But one of them has something much greater than just the external cleansing and healing take place. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He sees what it is that Jesus has done. And instead of continuing on his way to the priests, he returns back to Jesus where he is, and he knows. And what it is that we see here are the elements of worship. The components of true Genuine, humble, heart affection, worship for Jesus. One who had to yell, use his voice, standing at a distance, yelling for mercy, now uses his voice, yelling and exclaiming the praises of God. One who was forced to stay at a distance is now able to draw near and drops down to Jesus' feet worshiping him. He, when he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Oh, it almost as, didn't matter who was around or what anybody was going to think. He knew what it was that had happened to him and nothing could restrain his heart worship for what it is that Christ had done. At that moment, Christ was more valuable and more precious and his higher valued treasure over anything on the face of the universe. And he shows it physically with his response. 
as he comes back. He sees what it is that Christ has done, and he returns praising God with a loud voice. He falls on his face at Jesus' feet. What a position of humility. This genuflection. It's worshiping at Jesus' feet. Giving him thanks. Can you imagine if you were seeing this scene? What it would have been like? What if you were there watching the whole thing? What if you saw these ten men who had leprosy? And you saw them leaving, and as you saw them walking away, you saw them being healed. You're watching this incredible act, of, this incredible miracle taking place. And you see nine continue to go, and one turns back. And you see his response. You see his worship. You see his love. You see his thankfulness. I would be astounded at where, where are the other nine? Why haven't they done the same thing? Don't they realize who this is and what has been done for them? And yet they continue to go on their way and he returns in, in, in heart worship. We see the components here of this posture of worship. This cleansing that took place within this one man was much deeper than what had taken place in the others. Praising God with a loud voice, fell at his feet and gave thanks. You know how important thankfulness is to true worship? I don't know if you can genuinely worship God if you're not truly thankful. I mean, thanks is a key component to true worship. Thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done. Thankfulness and gratitude for who he is. If your heart is full of thankfulness, you have no room for greed. You have no room for being unhappy or being dissatisfied. We're, we're commanded in Scripture to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians 5. Can you give thanks in all circumstances? Can you have, is this posture of worship only reserved for those special moments when God does really, something really, really great in your life for you? I've been praying about this thing for so long, and, and when God does that, then I will finally worship him like this. Or should this just be the regular posture of worship for every single believer? How fresh do we keep the gospel in our minds every day where we can come and worship him in this way? Do you come and you worship and you give thanks? If you saw him, would you fall at his feet and sing and give thanks and praise him for what it is that he's done and for who he is? When he returns on that wonderful day, Are you just going to exclaim how thankful you are? Proclaim his excellencies as you look upon him. Are you going to worship him in this way? Brothers and sisters, this is what this is the privilege 
We were once far away. Now we've been drawn near. We were once separated by our sin. Now we've been cleansed. He invites us in. And so we should come in. It is a wonderful privilege to be brought near to him and given the the opportunity to worship in a way that's pleasing to him. And to top it off, at the end of verse 16, now he was a Samaritan. If you're a Jew and you're reading this, you're going, what? Not only was was he unclean because of his leprosy, he was just unclean because he was a Samaritan. Even if his leprosy went away, he would always be unclean because he was a Samaritan. That's how they viewed, that's how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. They were rivals. They loathed one another. They had separate temples for worship. They did not interact with one another. And we've seen this over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, right? We think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke is the only one who records that parable. Luke makes a special point to emphasize the purification that Christ does in the lives of those who are unclean when they come to him by faith. Lepers, Samaritan, I mean, the guy had two strikes against him. And he's the one that returns to worship. We should see and rejoice the tremendous amount of love of mercy, true mercy that Jesus shows him. And see the way that the Samaritan responds in worship to Jesus. He is the sole object of worship in this man's life and in his heart. What's interesting is that Jesus says in verse 17, then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to who? What does the text say? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus' self-identification as God, right? Who Who does the leper return to praise? It's very clear that he turned back and fell at the fate, his face fell at Jesus' feet in verse 16, and yet Jesus says, was no one found to return and give praise to God. And his self-identification with him, with being deity. Jesus knew. It's popular in a lot of Christian circles out there that Jesus wasn't fully conscious of his um, position as his, his being of God. He wasn't aware that he was divine. He wasn't aware that he was God himself. And passages like this show us that Jesus was very well aware of who he was, of him being divine in nature. This man is coming back to worship me. He's coming back to worship God. In which, and, and in doing so, he, he proclaims to know who Jesus is and where the true healing and power came from. And Jesus again identifies him at the end of verse 18 as a foreigner. One who is outside the camp of my people. This is the one who comes back to return and give praise. 
And so then in verse 19, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, a different, different wording that Jesus used. You see in verse 14 that they were cleansed. In verse 15, they were healed. Both words indicating outward change. But this one, man, rise and go your way for your faith has made you well. Not only have you been outwardly cleansed, but inwardly you have been saved. That word made you well, that phrase there literally means your faith has saved you. This man is the one that has a true heart change. What's interesting is that all ten of them received the same treatment, right? It's not like he got better treatment than the others. They all received the same, and yet he was the only one who had a deeper cleansing, a heart cleansing happen in his life. And that's the reason why he returns to worship. You will never worship true humility, gratitude, and thankfulness like this unless your heart has been truly washed clean. Unless your heart has been truly healed. Unless you've been saved. Talk to anybody in this room who is a believer. Has come to know Christ through faith. Listen to the way that they talk about their heart being cleansed and the transformation that took place in their lives. I used to use my words for ridicule. I used to use my words for tearing down. I used to use my words for manipulation. I used to use my words for cussing and all kinds of other vulgar ways of speech. Now I use my words to exalt his name. I speak of his excellencies. I talk about his goodness and his kindness. I used to proclaim and I used to yell at excite, with excitement at other things in my life. Now I yell with excitement at the glories of the gospel, the good news of Christ, the triumph of the church when sinners are saved. I rejoice in heaven like the gospel of Luke records that heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. Those are the things that create within me an excitement because my heart has been changed and washed clean. The nine were cleansed and healed, but this man was made well as well, but not just outwardly, but inwardly. And we see that humility and faith are true companions to each other. Rise and go your way because it is your faith that has made you well. And this is, again, a common term that Luke uses. He used it in chapter 7 for the woman of the city that came in and washed Jesus' feet with her hair, crying at his feet. It was the same term used when Jesus clean, um, cleansed the, the demoniac, the demon-possessed man in chapter 8. And then the same word that's used again from the woman that was bleeding and comes and receives healing from Jesus. All of them are told, go your way, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. Faith, justification is by faith and by faith alone. It is faith that saves. It is faith that makes us well. 
It always has been and it always will be. Faith is always the key to salvation. And in doing so, it's always the way to access of covenant love. The existence of faith is what it is that they exclaim is have mercy upon us, show us covenant love. The only one in the story that was really shown true covenant divine love is the one that returned because he had the presence of faith, which scripture teaches us is a gift from God. To have faith is to be in divine covenant relationship with God. It's to be the recipient of divine covenant love. And if you, if you understand what I'm saying, you know that what I'm saying is if you're in covenant relationship with God, then all of his promises and all of his mercies are ours to be grasped and held on to. They all have their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. To be in divine covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ is to be adopted into his family and to never be let go ever again. Those who have faith in Christ, these are the true recipients of divine covenant love. These are, we are the people that have received true mercy from God. And if you are a Christian, then this is true for you. And you have been made well. Can you say that? That I have been made well. That it is well with my soul. Come what may in life, I am always attached to the divine God who extended divine covenant love and brought me into his kingdom, transferred me out of the domain of darkness and, and brought into his, the kingdom of his glorious son. And in that, we see and we rejoice not only for the leper, but for ourselves as well. We see and rejoice his extension of his covenant love to us. His engrafting us into his plan of redemption. In doing so, we prepare to take communion together. With this one, this is a reminder of our bonds of peace that he's made with us. Being recipients of this divine covenant love. We're partakers in it. That's why we partake of the meal. We're reminded. Every time you look at that cracker and you look at that little cup of juice, you're reminded that there has been something that has been done. There's a sacrifice that has been made. Christ himself, his body has been broken. His blood has been shed. And by faith in him and in him alone and what it is that he has done, I am adopted into this covenant relationship with him. Sealed. Secure forever. We see him on the way to Jerusalem. We consider him who has been faithful to us. We see the point of obedience proven clearly as the lepers respond to Jesus' command to go. We see the posture of worship, humility, and thanks. And in this way, we partake of communion together, being reminded of those things. This is the time for us to confess 
in the ways that we have not walked in obedience, ways that we have not lived in ways that, he is, that have been pleasing to Him. But this is also in time to embrace the forgiveness that's given to us in Christ. This is the time for the believer. If you are a believer in Christ, we invite for you to partake of this meal and to be reminded not only of, to confess the ways that we fall short, but to embrace His covenant love and forgiveness that's extended to us continually at this time. So I invite for you to, you can get up and grab the elements and return back to your seat. This is your first time to North Hills. We partake of this meal together. And so you'll have some time to grab the elements, return to your seat and pray. And then I'll lead us in our communion time together shortly.